Hello and welcome to another episode of Constructing Success, a sales and lifestyle and further education podcast. And today, with all my guests, I'm excited to interview them and shoot the shit and have conversation. Uh, But today is a very important day for me on the show. I have with me Dennis Connolly, and Dennis Connolly came into my life, I want to say it was 2013, and I was working at a company, and he came in to do sales consulting. And I remember being at a national sales meeting, and when he walked in, I was thinking, similar to what most of my clients are thinking when I walk in, who the fuck is this guy? How is he going to tell me what I should be doing and selling? He doesn't know my industry. He doesn't know my customers. He doesn't know the objections that I get. And I distinctly remember being this little, almost like a little shithead kid that would be in a classroom thinking, you know, let me raise my hand. I'm going to stump this guy. And I remember his response, and it was a, such a disarming response. In that instance, I knew that he was the real deal, that he could help me, that he could change the way that I look at things, he could change the way that I sell. And there were people, and this is the longest intro I've done without even saying welcome to the show, Dennis, <laughs> but, but I remember in that moment buying in. And within that company, there were people that kept their walls up. There were people that just went through the motions and showed up to show up because that's what they were getting paid to do. Uh, But I doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down. And and I had a manager that was um, kind enough and and embraced me enough to let me sit in on some of the the one-on-one coaching calls that Dennis was having with him. And from me sitting in and being a sponge, and absorbing that knowledge, not only did it change my year of selling, and not only did it change my trajectory within that company, and I'll go into further details on that uh, later, I'm sure, but it changed my career, it changed my relationships, it changed the way that I dated, the questions that I asked, the things I was looking for, the way I qualify people, the way I speak with family members, the way I speak to peers, and um, I'm going to say this again, this is actually a record-breaking intro, but today I am fortunate enough to have someone that I consider a mentor, one, someone that I consider one of the best salespeople in the world, one of the best negotiators, and um, someone that has just, well, brought me to where I am today. And I can tell you this podcast wouldn't be happening right now had I not met Dennis back in 2013, 2014. So without further ado, and there you go, there's the record-breaking intro. <laughs> Dennis, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Derek. Um, I'm, I'm listening to all of that, realizing that, hmm, wouldn't it be great if every client I ever had was able to say the same thing? But the re- reality is not all of them have that experience, and so a big part of that equation is the uh, – is in this case, you know, the coachee, the trainee. Um, you know, Derek, you've done something uh, with the material that most people don't do. And so don't sell yourself short on that. Cool. Thank you very much. And if I, I, I do believe that the, the missing piece there or the, the break in the equation would be buy-in. And if everyone yeah. bought in, I believe they would have had the same experience as me. But that's the... 
you know, that's the, if we talk about self-limiting beliefs or outlook, that's the, when I wake up, am I going to embrace something new or am I going to fear change? And I think the people that embrace new things and are open to trying something before they write it off, they would all have the same experience that I had. So, yeah. So thank you for coming into my world and thank you for joining me today. Yeah. Now, and I I think, well, first of all, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, and I love I love what you're doing, and the podcast is is great. Um, one can learn much from these kinds of conversations, and you know I hope today is useful for people um, to the extent that they're listening to it. Um, but uh, one of the things that you just said was uh, that you know wouldn't it be great if everyone had that kind of buy-in? And and I think that we in our in our roles as consultants and trainers and coaches. Um, have an opportunity to, to act, in fact, make that happen, or at least help make that happen. You know, we can't make any anything happen for, for real. But we don't have to sit back and think, hey, it'd be great if that happened. We can actually step in and try to play a role in making that happen. So when you think about the idea of buy-in, and, you know, imagine if you've got 50 salespeople and 15 managers and uh, three or four leaders, vice presidents, et cetera, and then on up, on up the line. Um, we'd want them all to buy in. But here's the thing. This all hap- it happens in two directions. Oh, you, have the, you have sales folks that are being trained, and they're going out, and they're improving, let's say, and moving into a different place. But at, at the same time, and this is just true of teams in general, is that there's kind of a, there's a bottom-up, aspect of teams but there's also a top-down um aspect of them as well uh what is what what are the you know what are the expectations that the leadership is setting how are they creating environment where somebody wants to participate a a trainer coming in saying hey everybody look over here here's how you do this doesn't necessarily mean much to that person because their their bread is buttered by somebody else not you Mm -hmm. and therefore if that somebody else is apathetic then you can expect them to be somewhat apathetic. If that person's not apathetic, it is interested in this, but isn't holding anybody accountable to it, mm-hmm. then you're going to get some mixed results. Mm-hmm. And if that person says, I'm not spending money on this unless we're going to get an outcome, and we're going to get an outcome because I'm going to lead the way, and I'm going to get people to follow me with, with, with a, a commitment and competence, uh, then we can get one heck of an outcome. So... I think that one of the things that we learn in this business is that we're training the whole organization. We're coaching the whole organization. Even if someone says, I want sales training, fine. Do you want the sales training to work? Okay. So, <laughs> so let's train the sales organization and let's train the leaders that are driving the sales organization because that'll make the thing work. I, I just have to pause on that note because that. You know, we talk about qualifying questions and we talk about never assuming anything. And what you just said, it's it's one of those bonehead questions that I would think is a bonehead question. Like, of, of course you think that. But in reality, sometimes it's almost like a rah, rah, we're going to bring in sales training for a day of feel good. Like, you know, we're going to pay this much. We don't, we don't want to spend too much more and, you know, sales training, sales training. So just come in, tell them what you know, and and we'll be really pleased. And, um, you and I have talked about this. There's, there's a 
huge difference. There's a stark contrast between sales training and sales transformation. <laughs> and in sales training, I, it, I hope this doesn't bother you when I say this, but I actually, um, there's nothing wrong with, this might get me in trouble, there's nothing wrong with that profession and, and I think it's great. But if someone refers to me, well, when people refer to me as a sales trainer, I almost find it offensive. <laughs> I don't know if you feel that way. I'm not coming in just to train on something. I am coming in to change the organization. It's not just you keep doing what you were doing and you follow the same systems and processes and I'm going to give you a couple different questions to ask to overcome resistance or get through an objection. I'm coming in to reframe everything within the organization so that it flows soup to nuts from A to Z in a better way. And if there's a break anywhere within that system, or if there's a break anywhere within those processes, well, that's the whole reason that we're getting paid to come in. We're getting paid to come in to find the break. And along the way, you know, it's kind of like, um, I remember my dad saying this when I was in high school and thinking, you know, there was the movies Fast and the Furious and you do the, all these modifications to cars. And I remember thinking, oh, well, I want to do this exhaust or I want to do this tra uh, transmission or this turbo. And my dad said, well, those, those parts aren't meant for that vehicle. And if you put in a turbo, great, you've increased your horsepower, but now with the stress on the transmission, you're going to break the tranny. Or if you do this, there's going to be uh, pieces of the car that can't handle it. Now it goes really fast. Well, you need bigger brakes to be able to slow that down, <laughs> or it's not going to be able to take that turn, or you need wider tires. And so these brakes that we find when it's when the organization is operating as is with the brake, that means that brake has affected other pieces off of it. And just because we found the hole, there are so many portions that have been operating with these, I'm not going to say bad behavior, but with this less than desirable piece that it flows out. And it's not one simple fix. There's, there's so much that goes into it. And this is very regular for me. I'm going to take off on tangents like that. But what you said about, you know, sales training versus sales transformation and buy-in. <laughs> buy-in is, buy is such a big piece. And, and when I think about when I'm saying you came in, and I was fortunate to sit in on some of those one-on-one -on -one calls and, and hear how you taught and see the light bulb moments for my manager at the time, Van. It was, I can see now pulling myself out of the situation. The reason that other people didn't buy in the same way is I respected Van. And whatever Van said was gonna be gospel for me. And so when Van said, this dentist guy knows his shit, pay attention, like this is good stuff. The difference between me paying attention and a peer is that peer's manager said, I don't buy into this shit. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, just keep doing your thing. That's right. a huge difference in how you're going to embrace material and how you're going to use material. Right. Right. You know, and, and I think it's legitimate if, um, if a manager says, look, I'm not going to put the time into this. I've got a whole bunch of things on my plate. I've got to get them done. And I don't see anything here that's really going to help me. Um, you know, there are two reasons why that could happen. One is, you know, they've listened for a few minutes and said, okay, this person really doesn't know what they're talking about. They're taking something off the shelf. And it's probably where the, you know, the origin of your sense of, uh, of, of kind of feeling a little off when someone calls you a sales trainer is that sales trainer sort of 
connotes taking something off the shelf. It's kind of like, you know, you're at the checkout counter and it's like, well, how many of those would you like? And so I'm going to be the sales trainer exactly. um, versus the transformation person, which is looking at it more holistically. But the, the manager could be saying that because it's, because it's uninteresting, regurgitated, um, you know, non-information, not useful information, not helpful information or even garbage. Um, or it could be a, a whole different thing. It could be that you've got great material, but that sales manager has not opened their mind to rethinking anything that they're doing. They may feel, I've already got this figured out. And this is also why leadership plays play such a strong role. So, you know, when we're using terms, we might say salespeople, we might say sales manager, which is sort of that one one step up in terms of direct reports. And then you have a leader, which could be a director, could be a vice president. Those are terms of art, and they just depend on how they're being used in that particular company. But essentially, you have a salesperson, you got a manager, you got a manager of managers. Well, we have to talk about all three because the salespeople are going to, you know, function and feel good and 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 get up every day and get excited because of the environment created by their manager. The manager is only going to create that environment if A, they're wired to do that, or B, there is a leader helping them and letting them know that you know what, it makes a huge difference when people are working in a, in a good, positive, productive environment. So what does yours look like? Let's measure it. Let's talk about it. Let's make it better. Um, all those things have to, be, have to be going. So you know, here's a situation. You're at a company where your manager said, this is good, listen. And the other manager said, this is bunk. We don't need this. Now, <laughs> it's the same training at the same company. So it's probably not true that both are, are correct. Um, if it's good information, then it's good information. If someone says it's not, it's probably, then just probably, a little more likely that it's that manager as opposed to the material. And if it's the manager, then let's, let's make sure that's the case. Am I delivering material that they don't need to know, already know, or isn't that useful? Um, and if that's not the case, then let's talk about that manager. We want transformation. Then that manager is going to have to do something a little bit differently. Well, how's that going to happen? It's not going to happen because I say do it. It's not going to happen because you say do it. It's going to happen because manager of manager says this is important. Mm -hmm. So where, where are we on that spectrum? Um, those are the really uh, important things. So that transformation piece is more holistic. Mm -hmm. We have to look at the entire organization and say, how can this organization have a transformation? Well, it's skills, it's thinking, it's mindset, it's DNA, it's the level of grit they have, it's the managerial structure, it's the environment they're working in, it's how they're being coached up so that they're always better, it's the culture of constant improvement, it's motivation, and it's accountability. It's all of that. And how is that all being directed and who's responsible for it? And does anybody in the organization care enough about it or are they just checking a box? And I'm just going to take a pause right there. This is for the listener. You're not going to be able to see me. This is my little wink to Dennis. That's our first golden nugget. Okay. <laughs> there we go. So, so on that topic, and I'm, I'm making a joke. Dennis and I talk all the time on the phone and I'll be listening to him. And he says these, these, these 
gems of information where I'm sitting there and halfway through, I say, shit, I wish I had that recorded. And we've talked about this enough that this episode, this is the culmination of those things. And, and, um, I, I am confident for the listener and what we pull out of this, that, that there's going to be handfuls of information like that, that comes together that hopefully can help someone else out there. And on the topic of getting buy-in and having buy-in because it's coming from the leadership level down, um, my question for you would be, because I've run into this before, and leadership can say this is what we're doing, but as salespeople that need to be confident, and confidence can, you know, it, it can be a very thin line to arrogance when we are so certain we're right and we're so certain that we know the right things. My question is, how do you get buy-in or how do you get change when there is resistance, even though the CEO or even though the leader has said this is what we're, what we're doing, but you get to that next layer down and it doesn't feel like you're getting buy-in? Well, one of the things that you, that's important in this, especially if we want transformation, is to is to have a direct line to that manager of managers or even leader, corporate leader, uh, sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's the executive you know, vice president of sales, for example, but it's somebody. And, uh, and you, need, you need some kind of conduit in there. And when we talk about this as a holistic thing, it, it usually is not very effective to just have sales training. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, maybe we ought to have some sales training here, I'd say you know, consider that very carefully. Because sales training by itself um, doesn't work very well, and we've done some studies on this. And the the for people to to be trained in sales and for that to take and for them to go far with it, there needs to be a level of coaching too. That doesn't mean that that we have to coach. It doesn't mean that I have to coach. Someone has to be coaching that salesperson. So, and you know, within most organizations. Coaching is not necessarily, uh, it's not the same in all organizations. It's not even understood to be the same. So some coaching is more effective than others. And, um, and I'll get back, I'll, I'll weave this back into your question. But if we start with the idea that coaching is required in order for training to take, in order for it to be used, for it to become you know, in that realm of unconscious competence, for it to get there, there's going to need to be coaching on the methods, strategies, and tactics uh, that are being used in order to be effectively help move people to change and uh, get more sales that way. Um, managers need to be able to do that. And if they can do that well, then they can take the material and coach to it. Most of the time, because coaching is seen so differently and also people sometimes mistake the ad hoc in the moment kind of tackling a particular problem as coaching mm-hmm. um, that they may think they're coaching already and when we analyze that at companies we we can you know we can make a pie chart essentially of the kind of coaching they're getting and usually they're getting some kind of in the moment coaching which is useful and helpful but doesn't it doesn't systematically move people to become better at the science and art of selling. Mm-hmm. So back to the question, 
you have to have some kind of a direct line into leadership. So one of the, and then again, back to your kind of visceral response to sales trainer. Well, it's, it's precisely because we're really talking about how do we get that organization to transform? And to do that, we, we're going to need some training. We're going to need some coaching and we're going to need leadership that is bought into how it works. So part of what we're doing is coaching that leader uh, to be part of maybe at the top of the sales organization, but an integral part of the sales organization. They need to be uh, very bought in and helping the organization do that. They have to decide that this is where we want to go. It also helps a lot if they, if the leader has a very specific outcome in mind. I have a client that you know looked at this whole uh, looked at their whole sales organization, and it's about 60 people. And what they said is, we have um, we have a certain, we'll just call it a percentage rate that they're after of a particular market. And they need to move that by about two or three percentage points. But what happens is that they're all pretty good. And so they get to this level, and by not getting that extra two or three percent, that two or three percent is a huge amount of money. It makes a giant difference to how they're going to move forward and how successful they're going to be. Huge. Three percent. It's a little bit. Everyone needs to be a little bit better. Sixty people. Mm -hmm. This is a case where working directly with the leader, the head of the entire sales organization, the 20 or so uh, managers and about 40 salespeople. Mm-hmm. That, that leader has to be bought into the program, very interested in getting the whole, the whole thing to work properly, and therefore driving it. And now, when that person feels that way, they will show up to training sessions uh, of both of managers and of salespeople mm-hmm. and kind of you know, be, a, be, a, be a motivator in there. We're not the motivator. The motivation comes from the organization, but we can help the organization from a leadership level learn how to motivate. Mm-hmm. But we're really not the motivator. We can get somebody to feel good in the moment, but they're, how they show up every day has so much more to do with the environment created at that company that does us that we would really be um, unnecessarily and probably wrongly patting ourselves on the back if we thought we were going to motivate an entire sales organization to improve. Mm-hmm. We can get them excited for a couple hours. A couple hours max. And there's some people that will carry it maybe for two weeks, but right. without, without reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's like if you, if you spoke a different language and you left that country and you no longer speak the language, you will year by year, it'll start to go away. And if we had three or four hours with someone that is, I mean, it's like the second we leave the room, they're already missing pieces. And like, I, I can think about whether it's a book, whether it's a movie, if I've watched a movie multiple times, I realized that I missed parts. Like, how did I not see that the first time? Right. And so the repetition, repetition is the mother of skill. And when we come in and do something, it isn't going to work if there isn't reinforcement for ever after we leave. And the, the less the reinforcement is, the less the coaching is, the less the reminders are, it is daily. It'll be, it will be leaving their memories. And 
my question would be, because I'm, I'm always, you don't know what you don't know, but why would you think, or, or what do you think it is that there isn't, there isn't education, you know, with, without a company like us or a, a firm like ours, why isn't there education on how to coach and how to motivate? Because more often than not, a sales manager, almost, I would say 99% of the time, a sales manager was a really good individual contributor that isn't necessarily going to be the right person to coach. It might not even be the right fit, but it just seems like the next logical step in their career tra uh, trajectory. Why do you think it is that there isn't more education, teaching, or systems in place to help motivate and coach from the management level? Well, I think in a way you've answered your own question. Um, most companies are promoting the person who is a good contributor. And yet, let's look at the skills difference requirements of a player versus a coach mm -hmm. in, in any format. You know, how many great sports players um, become just as good at coaching? Okay, you can name a couple, mm -hmm. but most of them can't coach. Right. And a lot of times that falls flat. Here's another one. Name some great coaches that really weren't great players. I was going to say, that's, that's the majority. Right, that's they're the majority. to play, but they're great coaches. They're great coaches. Um, because it's a different skill set. So you're looking for somebody that has the skill set for what you need. There isn't a generic kind of, you know, well, there it, people use it. So uh, a, a generic form of, should I hire this person, would be based on personality in a social context. Mm -hmm. They seem to have all the ingredients of the kind of person that would be a great person to be in a company that could be effective and so on. And, but it doesn't have anything to do with their specific skills or mindset around a particular role. And so we tend to hire people based on personality because that's what we know. And that's what we grew up with. And that's you know how we interact with people. And it's usually on a social level. So we meet somebody on a social level, we hire them into that role. If they do really well in that role, then we think, oh, well, then well, let, let's move them up so they can show someone else what they did. But studies have shown that most people, the better they are, the less likely they are to understand why they're that good. And they don't make the best teachers. Albert Einstein was a terrible professor. They eventually kind of cut him down to like, okay, you can have this one class. They took classes away from him. Few people would show up. It was like, it made no sense to them. He assumed they knew way more than they did. He didn't remember what it was like not to know this stuff. And you can go on and on about, um, you, I mean, about examples of that kind of thing. And it has been studied in the psychological world uh, as well. Um, so I think that's part of it. The other, uh, the other piece is that if they're going to become great coaches, how? Who's teaching them how to be a great coach? Mm -hmm. The person they're reporting to that themselves was promoted from down here to up there? That gal? Right. That guy? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's who's going to teach them how to coach, who themselves don't necessarily know how to coach. One of the things that we have to do is we have to look very carefully at what the different positions are, what the roles are, and what skills are required for each of those roles. So a salesperson has a set of skills. We can look at it if we use objective management groups tool. Um, they look at 21 sales core competencies. And I would say having been through that many times, it's probably the 21 sales core competencies. It's what they need to have. But then you look at what a manager needs, and now 
there's a set of competencies that the manager should be spending most of their time doing that aren't part of that 21 sales core competencies. Now we need to know how to coach well. We need to know how to motivate, hold people accountable, and build an effective environment that people want to work in, that they show up to and do well in and can thrive in. Okay, Those are different, very different skill sets. Right. And who's training them on that? The organization? Where did they get the information? Again, if they're only – because I think, I think you said it well. Most of the time, that's what's happening. They're, they're moving people up. If they're moving people up, then that company, by definition, has a philosophy about leadership that doesn't match up with having the specific skills required for leadership. Right. It has the skills required for being really good at the person that they were leading. Mm -hmm. they go, they're really good at that role. So then we just sort of think that by osmosis, they'll, they'll figure out how to do the other role. And I think that's why we get that wrong. There aren't a lot of people that know what that you when we, we can go back to that pie chart and there might be ad hoc coaching and that there might be, you know, specific individual account coaching. There may be uh, something that is formal and structured and planned. And there and there could be several other different kinds of of coaching that are part of that. Well, which ones are they good at? Which ones are they excelling at and which ones are going to move their people forward? And do they even know know what that is? How would mm -hmm. they really? without being trained. So I think that the, I think the, the answer there is that anybody who's in that role, a managerial role, needs to acquire the skills necessary to be a great manager. Mm -hmm. They have to go find, they have to get those skills. And the company, if the company wants good managers, then it's incumbent upon the company to, uh, to set up a system whereby they can acquire those skills. It seems like it's, um more more often than not way more often than not it's just an expectation it, it typically isn't the company going out and giving those skills it's just an expectation of you were able to do this on your own replicate yourself make right. these people do what you did and there's just the there's the soft touch skills between being a and you could look at this from sports but being a dickhead leader or coach or someone that understands how to motivate people to change or understands um, how to motivate people to not motivate people, how to get people to understand what really is motivating them. Because it, you taught me this, but you know, if, if I tell you something, it isn't true. But if I ask you a question and you say it out loud for yourself, now it registers for you that it is true. And when you have a manager, you have some sort of leader that's come in and, and they say, which we hear so often, it pains me. I hear this in my dreams, but if you're not here to make money, I don't know what you're here to do, or I don't know why you're here. And make money, that, that's one thing, but there's intrinsic motivation, there's extrinsic motivation. And just because someone wants to make money, what do they want to make money for? Let's take it further. Let's remind them that they want to put their kids through college. Let's remind them that they want to get that second home or the boat. And why do they want the boat? Well, because I didn't have a boat growing up and I think it would be really great for my family to be able to enjoy this in the summers. Now that's motivation where they're leading themselves versus being harped down on by a shitty, mean coach, if you will. Right. And um, yeah, th those are just... 
those are just missing pieces that I hear so, so, so often that it, it, it's haunting. It's, it's my expectation now, sadly, that that's how the leadership is going. But um, yeah, it, it's just not. Yeah. Well, maybe they want the boat because they had a boat growing up and now they want to have one because that's what they're used to. Well, here's the thing. Those are two different people with two different motivations. And so I think the, the, the key to motivating is to understand what already motivates people. You're not going to get up in front of a group of strangers and come up with a whole bunch of things that motivate them all. How would you know? Everybody's motivated by different things. Right. So you have to get to know that person. It's incumbent upon a leader or a manager to understand their, the, the folks that they're working with well enough to, to know what already motivates them. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you better be using different language for the person who's motivated by, you know, by, say, the desire to win versus the person who hates to lose. Right. Well, let's not use the same words and verbiage and language for, for each of those people because right. they're going to be motivated by different things. One is going to be particularly fired up if something is said in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Somebody that hates to lose, they can remind them that, you know, so-and-so is catching up to them. They might lose. You know, right. that, that's going to be more motivated than, hey, you got a chance to win this. Right. Yeah, right. winning, I want to win. That's great. But wait a minute, so-and-so's catching up to me. Hold on a second. Yeah. Stop the presses. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's, that's really good feedback as well, yeah, because each, there's so many, if we look at like data points and decision-making, there's so many intricacies between what exactly, if you were to look at a tailored fit for motivation, there are pieces, like you said, loving to win or hating to lose and the way you're going to communicate that to someone and the way that you're going to motivate them based on that. And there's, yeah, there's so many aspects. Um, so there is a, there's a topic that I want to cover that will be valuable for the listener that's in sales. And, and I think you and I can cover this in pretty great detail. Uh, but if you were to think about, and there's multiple, um, but we'll just say the top three. What would be from an individual contributor standpoint, what do you think the top three things are? And we could take turns on this as well, but what's getting in the way of their success right now? So if someone is not hitting their number, if someone's not having a good time selling, they're not performing, to put them into a bucket and just like a wide bucket that would most likely capture them, what do you think those things are? Or what would be changes that you could say that if implemented would have the biggest impact? Well, that's a big, big question, but I think there are some, I think there are some key things that we can, we can look at, uh, and talk about, um, and and it could be a number of different things because it could just simply be complacency. Maybe mm-hmm. somebody's built a territory and they keep milking that same ter- territory, and they have the same ten or fifteen customers that uh, that make them a good living every year, and they're happy w- where they are. And so from an organizational standpoint, how do you break that complacency logjam for that person? So that's just sort of the motivational side um, of what's what's in it for that person. And you talked about that earlier and, you know, the the questions that you're asking to try to get to the why rather than just the how and the what. Um, But let's suppose you have people that are motivated and they're out there and they're really trying to do it every day. Well, do they have all the skills. Remember there's 21 sales core competencies. Now you don't need them all. You don't need every sales competency there is in order to be great at sales. If we look at, you know, the elite sales folks out there, maybe they have 
14 of those and that they do really well and they could really have you know quite a bit of room for improvement in the others but that's enough to drive it and this you know gets us to this general concept we can come back to that there are a number of ways one can be successful in sales and there are a number of skills that one can have to be successful in sales there isn't a all salespeople have these five qualities that doesn't exist mm -hmm. all good salespeople have enough of the various elements of the 21 sales core competencies to be really good in the specific role they're in. And if you put them in a different role, they might excel or they might not. They might fall down because their skills work well in the role that they're in, but not in the other role. Somebody that, for example, that's selling the miracle mop at a home show isn't necessarily going to be the same person selling Boeing 747s to countries. That's a different sale. And that's probably a different skill set. And, you know, if you're really good at selling the miracle mop and, you know, in 10 minute or five minute presentations at a home show, keep doing it. Um, but these are different skills. Now, let's name some other kind of fairly common things that can happen uh, to folks that are trying hard. They're motivated. They're waking up every day. They're calling on the right people. So, so let's say they're doing all that upfront work right. Mm -hmm. They get into the conversation and they start presenting too early or they start making assumptions or they're not even sure what a presentation is. And they think a presentation is the moment at which you're saying, okay, everybody, pay attention to the chart. I'm going to present now all the things we're going to do. And that is a presentation, but that's not really the most common presentation. The most common presentation is, you know, I, I am Dennis Connolly and I, and, you know, and I um, am a sales consultant, a sales trainer, an executive coach. Okay, that's a presentation. Mm -hmm. um, if I say, uh, well, let's see, I've been in business for 35 years. Um, I've started and built eight companies, and I've been consulting for 11 years to help companies achieve many of those same things. That was a huge presentation. Mm -hmm. That was a look at me. It's all about me. No one cares. No one cares. I mean, the, the care of my background is only from the standpoint of, is this person credible enough for me, not knowing them, to be able to listen long enough to see where this is going to go? That's about it. Mm -hmm. But once we've already established a relationship, then is there something there that's of value to them? So we have to be careful about pre presenting and about even recognizing what a presentation is. If you simply say that, well, I'm XYZ company, and we've been around for 20 years, that's a presentation. Mm -hmm. You say, we're really good at this. You know, we're second to none on this one aspect of this particular industry. That's a presentation. Even if, you, if they say, well, you know, tell me why you came here. Uh, tell, tell, tell me what you can do for me. I've done a lot of research. I've been online. I've looked it up. Uh, on the, I've, I've did some research on the internet. Um, I've got a fair idea of what I'm looking for, and I'd really just like to know what you can do for me and uh, maybe what it's going to cost me. And you might say, well, there's a lot of things I could do for you. But I'd really like to, uh, let's, say, let's do it this way. Let's say, there's a lot of things I could do for you. Um, you know, here's a short list of them. But I'd really like to talk about you. Okay, now that's a great direction to go, but they still present it. Mm -hmm. So just know that you, so recognize the presentation when it happens, mm -hmm. even if you've done it intentionally, even if you're okay having, having that presentation. You know, in the movie Hitch, when Alex Hitchens is trying to, uh, meet Sarah Milas at the bar and 
the only thing he says in that entire dialogue in the bar about himself is, I'm Alex Hitchens and I'm a consultant. Yes. Right? Because then he says, but she wouldn't be interested in that. She'd be counting the seconds until he left. Mm-hmm. And we're right, too. right. And we're right back to, he got away from the presentation. He said he had to say that just so he could carry on the conversation mm-hmm. because he, he then says he, she could ignore him or she could say, and then he pauses and says nothing until she says something. So he gave just enough. But you look at that whole five, six minute scene in that bar. And the only presentation made is I'm Alex Hitchens and I'm a consultant. Mm-hmm. The rest of the five and a half minutes or five, you know, or more is all trying to understand the world through their eyes, trying to articulate what that world might look like. So you ask, what are the, what are the things that salespeople need to do or what aren't they doing? That's one of the biggest things they're doing. As a result of presenting too early, they're not understanding what it is they need to present. What they need to do is take time to listen to somebody to understand what the world looks like from their point of view. Now, if you're an expert, and as a salesperson, presumably you're an expert in that particular area, you should have some idea of what that person is experiencing. What does their world look like? And you might try to articulate that and ask them, is that true for them? Not tell them what they're thinking. Tell them maybe what you've seen and heard from others in their same position and get them talking about what that world looks like. We can start from a standpoint of, I think this is what your world looks like. You know, people that I talk to in this space are telling me that it's getting tougher and tougher to maintain margins. What was once something where they were worrying about apologizing for not getting product out in time, they're now finding themselves having to say, I can't lower the price, even though the demand isn't there. Okay, that's, a, that's what's going on in, in that world. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's happening for you? So number one, I've started with, here's what I'm hearing. You can tell me if it's true or not. And why don't you put a finer point on that? Set me straight. Give me a little more detail. Let's talk a little bit more about what that is. So when we think about presenting and the idea that most salespeople do present too early, here's, I think, what helps salespeople to not do that. How do you know what to present? How do you know? What are you, a mind reader? So go ahead and present, but only present when you're absolutely sure that what you're presenting is exactly what they need that they've articulated they need, not what you've guessed they need, but what they've articulated they need. So that helps us as salespeople because we have this concept of, of I want to present because I know my stuff and I want to show how much I know. And the interesting thing is your prospect will think you know even more if you're able to describe the world they're living in And if they're able to describe the world they're living into you and you're able to hear it and summarize it back to them in a way that they say, wow, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Now they will think you are the master. They will think you know how to solve their problem and you didn't have to tell them how you were going to solve their problem. He never said more than I'm Alex Hitchens and I'm a consultant. That's it. But he got into her world so much and described what she was living in that by the end, when he's walking out, she's kind of going, looking around her friend going, oh, where's he going? 
who is that and what just happened? Yeah, who is that and what just happened? And the same thing happens in sales because your prospects will do the same thing. We'll go, well, that was different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And no presentation was made. I can't make a present, but please present to me. What am I going to present? Right. And this just happened to me recently, actually. And they said, you know, well, tell, tell me, you know, all the things you're going to do. I said, look. I said, oh, and, they, and the, the other one I love, send me some information. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what information? I yeah. said, listen, I can bury you in information and you'll never get through it all. But I don't have any idea what to send. Why don't we have a conversation where we can go through and, and learn all the, you know, and learn what's going on and what might be needed so that by the time I send you information, it's exactly the information that fits what you're looking at right now, what you're seeing right now, what you need right now. Mm -hmm. And um, at this, in this particular instance, her suggestion was, well, I think you're going to need to talk to the CEO if you say so. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right? So exactly. that's... I, I think that's it. It's presenting too early, not understanding what constitutes a present a presentation to begin with and making way too many assumptions. Yeah. So, so I'd fully agree with that. And I think, so if we're looking at the 21 sales core competencies, <clears throat> what I think gets in the way or what I think will fast track someone to a premature presentation, if you will, is not not qualifying this is a big part of it but need for approval and need for approval being they asked me to show them what i've got and here's what it is i don't want them to get mad they they asked me and i want their business so i'm going to do what they say because i want to be cooperative and this is relationship building and if they don't like me they're not going to do business and when these things happen so when i'm saying need for approval and and qualification or qualifying there's more pieces to it than that. And you could take supportive beliefs or staying in the moment. But I would say being afraid to disqualify. That's, that's a big piece. And I think you, it was you that said this to me um, as an expert, as an expert in the industry. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying a sales expert. I'm saying if you work in one, two, three widgets and you know one, two, three widgets better than anyone else, when someone is looking for more information or if someone's looking for a presentation or a quote and you're having, you're having a conversation with them, as you are the expert, you should be the first person to tell them this isn't a fit. Yeah. And if you have made the presentation or given the proposal or quote, and they say, well, thank you. That was really nice. Um, I, I, I don't think this is going to work or, you know, I don't think this is the right solution. You fucked up. <laughs> you fucked up because you had sales breath or commission breath. And you just wanted to see if you could get anything where if we act in a way that I've got a hundred million dollars in the bank, I don't need this sale. I'd be happy to work with you. I'd be happy to help you. But I don't need this and time is valuable to me and I'm willing to give you the time if it's a fit, but if not, let's go our separate ways. You wouldn't have made the presentation and you wouldn't have made a suggestion that wasn't in line with what you could or couldn't do. Right. So I, I think that, and this is uh, when we're talking about pieces that build off of other pieces and this could even, this could even go into dating if you wanted to, but 
when we're afraid to disqualify something, it's usually because we want to hold on to that opportunity. And if we're so hyper-focused on a single opportunity, that to me means we don't have enough opportunities. And without enough opportunities, we're operating in a scarcity mindset. Well, I've got four deals in the pipeline, can't let, it, let any of them go. Right. Where if I had 200 opportunities in the pipeline, I don't care about anything that isn't going to be an ideal fit. In fact, if I have 200, I'm going to be really careful with who I decide I'm going to do business with. And so if the opportunities is leading to the scarcity mindset, then it would take it a step further. And there probably isn't enough new business development going on. And there's this, it almost feels like, um, it's funny the way that this is thought about, but with new business development, that is typically at most companies a junior, and I'm using air quotes as I'm doing this, but a junior role. You're bringing in someone out of college to hammer the phones and set appointments. Well, isn't that such a backwards thought process that the first person that's <laughs> going to have an interaction with a potential client or customer is the person that is the most uncomfortable on the phone? And when you take a, you know, you went from an SDR or BDR and you were promoted to an account executive and you're now this next level, I've had, this is, this is even with companies I've worked with, just like friends, friends that I, the friends that I shoot the shit with that are working at different companies, they're not doing new business development because they feel it's below them. And I have one buddy that we, we talked about this and it was an epiphany for him. When I said, I asked just, how often are you picking up the phone? And like they have a lead base. This is performing. How much are you doing to proactively sell? And it just like that conversation with him and him picking up the phone for the first time in eight months because no one else does that in that role, that started changing his day to day. And he was less focused on what's going to happen with this deal. Are they going to sign? I haven't heard back because he was so busy filling his pipeline. And when you have this abundance mindset you know we talk about sales methodology and the words that we say and you know i really don't like you versus i really like you that that's one word to say two completely different things and these little subtleties can change how we come across it can change our messaging and we forget that just even our body language and our response time and i'm not, I'm not saying delay your response times to do that as some sort of posturing but if you were so, if you were really so busy that you weren't just waiting for an email response to fire back really quickly, how does that change the way that your prospect, customer, potential customer views you? When you're calm and easy and, hey, nice to meet you. If this works, great. If it doesn't work, hope you find something better. Everything changes in your world. So that's me once again going on a tangent, but that's the need for approval to disqualify early, running a proper qualification process. And in the qualification questions that we're too scared to ask or that we miss or that we just are afraid will blow up the deal, guess what? Those are the fourth quarter issues that come up when you make the presentation. Every time it's as effective as gravity. The question you didn't ask is the question that blows the deal later. Yeah, so right. <clears throat> take that and run it qualification, new business development, posturing, 
that's my, I guess I threw four things in there, but those are some things that I think are really getting in the way of someone being successful versus someone not, not making their quota. Well, I think that, that first of all, that was a, that was a good summary of a lot of different things. And you, there was a lot packed into what you said and somebody would be wise to listen to, uh, to, to what you, you've just said, cause it's all good stuff. It's all useful. And a sales, a salesperson just listening to the last couple of minutes of you speaking, if they did nothing else, could make improvements to their selling just on that. And we, often we don't have to improve that much to, to really make a difference in our outcome. We're in the role we're in. We're successful in the role. You know, somebody's in, you know, if you're a salesperson, you're in that role. You know, if, you, if you're not this close to, you know, being let go, then there's a reason why you're there. If you've been there for long enough, you've been successful in the role. So that's just one of the things that leads people to think, well, maybe I don't have to get better. I'm already in the role. Nobody's letting, nobody's going to show me the door, right? But I could be a lot better. But do I want to be better? Am I motivated to be better? Why do I need to be better? Does anybody care? Is somebody coaching me to tell me what to do differently? Because otherwise, I'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So they, they wouldn't really necessarily know. Um, but there is, uh, there's so much... Um, there's so much packed in to uh, to what you said that I think a lot of it um, could you know could be each individual point uh, could be made into a conversation that I think would also be helpful to people you know beyond just listening to those three minutes and getting a little bit better which they could do for sure um, I almost want to work backwards with this um, work backwards you, one perfect. of the things you said is uh, you said you know find something different uh, or you know, I hope you find something better well okay. If you ever find yourself saying, I hope you find something better, then one of two things is true. You, in your expertise, know that there is something better, and you should help them find it. Mm -hmm. The only other reason you said it is to be um, snarky. Right? Well, I'm, well, I'm saying better fit. That, that's what I'm saying. Some, that's right. But see, here's the fit. thing. It's like... Now, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to help them find it. You say, I think I, you know, I, I would have to agree with you or, or, or ideally, as you said, be the first one to say it, mm -hmm. that this isn't the best fit. There's a better fit out there. Now, again, you're the expert, so you might have an idea of who a better fit might be. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to do real work, but you could lob a couple names out there and say, I think this might be better for you. I think this might be better for you yeah. um, because you believe otherwise you don't believe that's true. So you'd either say, this, does, this isn't a good fit, but that is, so go call them. Mm -hmm. Or you don't believe that. And therefore, if you say, I hope you find something better, you don't actually mean it. Mm -hmm. So this, is, this gets to that whole mindset of, if we go in with the thought of, we're the expert and we're going to be the first one, we're going to listen carefully so that we can be the first one to tell them this isn't a good fit. That's mm -hmm. what we're looking for. I want to be the one. I have to say it before you do because mm -hmm. I'm the expert. And as soon as they say it first, you know, listen to everything you're saying. I don't think this is a good fit. It's kind of like, oh, I blew it. I didn't ask enough questions. They already got to a conclusion before I did, mm -hmm. which means they know a whole bunch of things they're not telling me. I didn't uncover it. I didn't ask it. And they got to a place where they said it's not a good fit before I do. Now, I may say, well, I'm not even, because I don't know enough, I, I'm not sure I believe them yet. So now it's like, okay, you're probably right. It's not a good fit. But do you mind if I ask you a couple more questions? Because I'd, I'd like to be convinced of that also. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, there are ways of, of saying that where it, it can be a little more disarming. It's not, I want to ask you more questions because I want to sell you, because I want to change your mind. We don't want to do that. We don't want to, that can't be the goal. Right. We want to ask them more questions so that we can gain a better understanding so that at least when we leave the conversation, we can give them the seal of approval that you're right. It's not a good fit. Right. So now you think that and I think that you're in pretty good shape. We're in agreement. We're in agreement versus you think that, but I'm not sure. And I'm the expert. So do you want my expertise or not? Right. Or do you just want to go with, ah, I think I know what I'm talking about. Right. You know, right. which is could be okay, but might not be. Right. Um, you made another really a great point when you're talking about the, you know, the per first person on the, on the call. I, I think this, you know, deserves a finer point as well. Um, here you have, you know, the BDR and the, the person's hired as a top of funnel person, make the phone calls. And, and then they hand it off to a closer. Now let's, let's put aside the folks that have to make a hundred calls a day. Let's just talk about the people who are in a complex sale and then they're, they're kind of working the phones to see who might be interested in having a conversation. They don't need to make a hundred calls a day. Maybe they may, they, maybe they make 10 or 20 and they're looking for, you know, real conversations and they're getting the ball rolling and they're trying to set up an appointment for somebody. And then you bring in the closer. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. When you look at a sales process, the way it's structured, most of the most of the sale happens at the beginning of the call, not at the end. The end is let's figure out what's in the way and mitigate that. Let's work together to do that because you already want to make this happen. So we can we can go through all of the process, meetings, stakeholders, all the folks that might be involved. Um, and, and maybe the criteria that the firm has in terms of who they're going to work with or where they're going to be located or what kind of staff they're going to have. All that stuff can be the, the near to the end of funnel mm -hmm. type stuff. But they're already sold or you wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Why would somebody want to work through all those parameters, difficulties, hurdles, et cetera, unless they were already pretty sold on the idea that you're the right fit? Because that's a lot of work. Why do that work with somebody that you don't even think you're going to work with? Right. Why are you going to introduce them to six people that are all involved, that are you know the people that are going to be wearing the decision and that are the stakeholders in many different ways? Why put all that work into it? Why show it? Why have, why earmark 10, 15, 20 minutes of a particular meeting with a whole bunch of leadership to talk about this when you don't even think that's the right person? You're not going to do it. So... When we talk about bringing in the closer and we hire this BDR to be an upfront person to make the calls and then they can graduate to be the closer, we, we've got some fallacies there. First of all, the BDR is the most important part of getting the sale. The closer is called the closer because they typically are the ones that close the deal. But the way they close the deal is they have to go back and redo the first part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because if that... BDR is not well equipped to have that conversation the right way, then the closer is actually starting from scratch. They're closing the deal because they're getting the upfront stuff right, but they're redoing the upfront stuff. Mm -hmm. They're not getting the close because they have some special closing magic wand, fairy dust that they sprinkle on the person to get them to close. They don't have 15 different closes that they're selecting from a, from a brochure of potential closes. You know the Ben Franklin clothes or whatever it might be. They 
they're going and having the first part the right way so that the person feels like they're in good hands, that the person understands them, so that the one says that, so that prospect says, wow, you really get it. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly it. Now the rest of it is just detail to, to make sure that there's nothing standing in the way of the deal. But that first part is, do I understand what's going on well enough to be able to say, this is something that can be helped and it, and, it, and it sounds like this is the help that you need. And for them to say, yeah, that's exactly it. Wow, you really get it. You were listening. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of backwards on that. And I understand why companies are doing that. They're doing it because it seems like it's less expensive to have a whole bunch of people make a bunch of phone calls. But they're wasting an incredible amount of opportunities because that person is not well-trained to have the upfront part of the sales call. Mm-hmm. The person who's been in the business for a while is going to be better at that. You might be better off having a uh, having the, the real salesperson be the upfront person and having the closer be essentially just a subject matter expert who's there just to get them, remove the obstacles, make sure that you know the details are right, the engineering plans are correct, whatever it might be that, but they're not really selling at that point. The sale was already done. So I would recommend two things for companies. One is either reverse that, have your best people on the front end, not the back end, have the most knowledgeable people of the product on the back end, but not the best salespeople, best salespeople, put them on the front end. Mm -hmm. Um, Also then elongate that front end. Don't just appointment set, have the conversation. So that when you're handing it off to somebody, you don't have to hand it off to somebody who has to redo the sales call. You hand it off to somebody that is the subject matter expert who is taking care of removing the obstacles, right? Qualifying. So that, so you just opened up two pieces for me and, and you're dead on where the, you should have the better salesperson running the process up until it's time to bring in the subject matter expert. But there is... Um, it's as you're saying this and as I'm hearing responses that I've heard in the past, there is a, it's comical. The situation is comical. So I've seen it work and I've heard it from both sides, the closer and the BDR. I've heard the BDR say, well, I'm getting fucked over because the closers can't close. Right. And I'm hearing the closers say, well, they're setting shitty meetings. And there's another break in it where the closer, and this isn't always how it is, but more often than not, this is how it is. The closer doesn't run any any substantial discovery. They have a meeting set that's an unqualified meeting. They pull out their pitch deck and then they go to close and they're confused why they're not ready to move forward. And what's missing there, and I've heard this in, in with, with what you and I teach versus what is natural or easy for the BDR to go to, is I've had pushback um, Initially, I've had pushback on the way that we approach the introduction to a call. And I remember a sales rep saying, well, you know, I'm not getting anyone to set meetings this way or or it's harder. You know, it's it's just not happening. And here's what I've been doing and I'm setting more meetings. So the way that you and I teach is we're trying to figure out if there is an issue and if there's an issue, do they even want help? Right? right? Just because someone has a problem, it doesn't mean it's a priority to fix. And if you're not getting yes to both of those things, why are we setting a meeting? And this salesperson, this BDR that came back to me said, 
I'm setting way more meetings with my approach. I said, okay, well, what's your approach? And he said, we're working on this state-of-the-art development and we want to let you in on it. So we're going to give you a sneak peek if you meet here. And I'm like, what? Okay, well, he's booking meetings. Fast forward two weeks later, you know how many people showed up for the call? Zero. Zero. And when he used a way where he was trying to identify, is there really a problem and do you want to do something about it? Sure. He didn't book as many meetings, but the people who did show up actually wanted help. And so when yep. you take someone that has that problem and they go to a closer, and if a closer runs the proper discovery instead of just jumping into the pitch deck, that's where that break can be connected. But without that, and with this, with this handoff that is leaving so much gray area, that's where the breakdown is. And then you've got the CEO saying, well, I don't want anyone cold calling because we're not having any success with it. They're setting shitty meetings. And then you've got the closer saying, well, I don't know what's going on. I'm presenting the material. I'm giving them the pitch deck and they're not buying. And they're saying, oh, the economy is tough. Sales are tough right now. And there's so much meat missing from what needs to happen before you could even begin to pull out the pitch deck, if that's what you're going to do, that it is almost at every time inappropriate. You know, if you think about it, um, you know, we talk a lot about how important it is to go from let's sit down and figure out if there's an issue and then is it compelling enough to do something about it? Mm -hmm. You know, is there some emotion behind getting that solved? And and then what are what are all the potential things that could um, could get in the way of it for either party? I mean, if they want to get the thing solved, then they they want to remove those obstacles, too. I mean, by the time you get to. Is it you know is it is the company the right fit? Are they fully qualified? Um, do we do we have the 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 the, the solution that they really need? And um, are we the right kind of company for them and all that? We finally get to that space. We're working on it together. It's not just us trying to remove obstacles. It's them doing it too. So you look at that conversation, and this this just speaks to what you're saying. Is that that's the critical part? You set the meeting. You have the meeting, but and then you have a whole bunch of things that have to happen, and then you are presenting a solution and closing. Well, it's hard enough for salespeople to keep track of that process where they come, they set the meeting, they sit down and talk to the person, and then skip over to the presentation. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough to get a salesperson to not do that. They say, wait a minute, remember, you don't know what to present yet. So let's spend some time and figure out what matters to this person. Can you understand their world? Do you get it? Uh, do you uh, are, are they thinking that you understand it and you get it better than anybody else so that you've really differentiated yourself? Mm -hmm. And and have you worked through the things that could be in the way together as two people who both want this thing solved and both want to get it done? That's what needs to happen. Now, if you take a sales team that's broken up between a BDR and a closer, what happens? The BDR, the only job they're given is set the meeting. So they walk away after you're done with the kind of the first stage of the sales process. They're done. Then the subject matter expert, closer, whoever it might be, steps in. Well, their assumption, and remember this is the problem, one of the, one of the big problems salespeople face is making assumptions. Their assumption is they have a good prospect teed up, and all they've got to do is present a wonderful solution. 
All right. Glad you could meet with me today. So-and-so did a nice job setting this up. They're great. Oh, you met you met uh, him or her? The great person, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. So anyway, I brought with me my slide deck, and I'll go through with you all the reasons why this is a great idea. Their assumption is that this person wants to buy, mm-hmm. and all you've got to do is tell them the right things, and they'll want to buy. Mm-hmm. So now that's the disconnect you're talking about, is that B- BDR sets a meeting when a salesperson sets that meeting, half the time they forget to do all that stuff before the presentation. Well, if you, if they're not even the same salesperson, they think it's already done. Yeah, They have no idea. So they're going right to the presentation part and skipping the absolutely most important stuff. There's a very important point to make, I think, here um, with respect to this. Because if you're a salesperson and you're listening to this right now, you, you might be thinking, okay, but I'm already getting good sales. I must know what I'm doing and I'm not necessarily following this idea of get finding something compelling, differentiating myself, quantifying it in some way, and then figuring out what all those obstacles might be. I'm getting a meeting and I'm having, uh, making presentations and I'm getting sales. That's right. You're getting all the sales one can get by doing exactly that. You're getting all those sales. That's fine. Sometimes that's enough. You got such a great product, that's all you need to do. Practically sells itself, great. Or it's just your warm, charming personality that they love so much, they'll buy anything from you, they don't care what it is. It could be a number of things. But if you want to improve, and you want to, more importantly, make a difference with the person who could go either way. Because there's the the folks that are relatively easy to sell if you're able to get in front of them They need it. They want it. They want it solved. They have a compelling reason to do it, whether they share it with you or not, and they're ready to buy. And they love the company, and they have reasons for loving the company already, and they're going to buy from you. Then you have the people that are never going to buy from you. They don't like the company. They don't like you. They don't like how you look. It's not going to happen. Or, you know, they had a bad experience once, or their grandfather had a bad experience once, and that's that. You're not going to get them. And there is a quite a few sales that we can probably all think of. Anybody listening to this, you can just think of all the sales that you made and all the ones that you almost got. Somewhere along the way, you can say, oh, I almost got that one. Well, those are the ones that when we're talking about, when Derek and I are talking about these different ways of thinking about this and following a, a good process, we're really talking about those those deals that could go either way because you don't need a sales trainer to help you with the stuff you're already getting and you don't need a sales trainer to tell you why you're not ever going to get the stuff you're never going to get and it's a waste of time most of the time it's kind of like next let's move on let's use our time efficiently we're really just talking about the stuff that's on the fence that could go either way when you want to change your fate your outcome where this is all going to go for you it's about getting a greater percentage of the deals that that yesterday you almost got mm-hmm. and tomorrow are going to become a, the deals that you get. Will you get them all? No. There's nothing you can do that gets every deal. But there's a lot you can do that improves the percentage chance of getting deals that could go either way. Mm-hmm. And that's what doing this stuff does. If If a company needs to excel... It needs to beat the competition, needs to rise above the pack, 
needs to get incrementally more sales and they already have good people, the only way they're going to do it is by following a process that taps into human emotion, psychology, that is part of how people are moved to change in some way. We have to understand what that is. We have to understand the process around it and we can guide that process and we can guide that for our prospects so that we get a greater percentage of the deals that we otherwise might've almost got, but didn't. And we can change our fate. We can change our outcomes dramatically by getting better and better at that, becoming people that can differentiate ourselves much better, follow a process better, find the compelling reasons, have the conversation nobody else is having because we're tapping into the emotion that that person has and they are feeling it and they are feeling, wow, somebody gets my world. They get it mm -hmm. and they can feel that. That's where we're going to get the biggest change and the biggest outcome from sales organizations. So that's, there's a ton to unpack, to unpack from what you said. And when you're saying that the prospect feels we get it and we get it better than anyone else and we can get them to a state where if this happens all the better but but emotional you know, get them to feel something um there's an example I, i've heard this i don't know if this is i think i heard this on another i, I want to say it was ed Milet, a podcast but there was a i could be wrong there was a situation where this person that was speaking was talking about being um, being unhealthy deemed by their physician and the physician had been talking to them like, wait like okay, being got overweight it. okay and uh, by physician they, got it by physician yeah and being almost on the um like, like right on the edge of uh, diabetes yep. and it had been years and you go in for your annual checkup and the doctor says the same thing like you know dennis you gotta you gotta lose weight like i'm telling you you're gaining weight you're gaining five ten pounds a year at this rate it's looking grim and every year it's the same response so this is a situation where the person needs help but they don't want help they know they need it but they don't they don't particularly want it so when we're talking about selling and we get a business reason someone tells us we've got frustration with this and someone jumps to make a presentation but they haven't they haven't gotten to the personal reason they haven't gotten to an emotional reason they haven't pulled out the compelling reason well in this instance the person that I was listening to, they said the reason that they made the change, you know, it'd been like seven years of the doctor saying, dude, like, come on, you need to lose weight. And the doctor finally said, um, said, how, how old's your daughter? And I think at the time the daughter was like seven, something mm -hmm. like that. And he said, so who have you, uh, who have you appointed to walk her down the aisle? <laughs> and the, and no, seriously. And, and, yeah, yeah. And the guy said, what do you mean? And he said, you're not going to make it. You're not wow. going to be able to walk your daughter down the aisle. I'm sure you'll find rate. somebody. But I'm sure, you're, yeah, you'll find yeah. somebody. You'll find and someone. that, when we're talking about <laughs> getting past the, you know, my doctor says I need to lose weight, right? That's, sure, I know, but I really like my donuts. I really like drinking this, whatever. That clicked the compelling reason, and that's that emotional response. And that emotional response can also bring urgency. And that question the doctor asked a question that yep. was a presentation in itself, but that takes it deeper. And that is that, that also that SOB, when we talk about this is a side thing, but speed on the basis, SOB quality, being a trusted advisor. That doctor didn't care what this person's response was going to be. He didn't give a shit because it was the right thing to say. 
and he challenged right. him on his thinking. And these are some pieces that, that are missing in the earlier portion of the sales process when, when you're saying all the selling happens in the beginning, all the closing happens in the beginning. We're just finding out towards the end what's getting in the way. Uh, but that, that's just a, a piece that when you were talking that that's well, I think mind. that's, that's a great, uh, it's a great piece. And it brings us back to, you know, you, this part of the conversation started a little while ago when you brought up kind of having need for approval. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we pull punches because we think that it's going to be rude or, or, you know, it's going to upset somebody. And, you know, here's a doctor saying, well, who's going to walk your daughter down the aisle? And, um, most of us might think, oh, you can't say that. Yeah, that's going to be really, you know, it's person's going to think you're a jerk. I said, well, is it real? Is it is it real and raw and honest and really does, uh, meant to help them? And, and is, the, is the thought there that, that we really truly want to help? But doctors are a great um, analogy. It's more than an analogy because they're they're a good person to talk about when you talk about salespeople. So it's an it's analogous to sales, but at the same time, if you really think about it, it is sales. So doctors are selling people all the time on different things. They might be selling them on a, on a procedure. They say, you know, you should have an MRI. Okay, well, MRIs cost a lot of money. So you just sold that person an MRI. What does the person say? They say, okay. They don't say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure. Tell me how much it's going to cost. And, right. uh, well, what's that really going to do? I don't know. I don't think I need that. Like, you know, most of the time they don't push back. And why don't they push back? Because, like you said, doctors automatically, when it comes to health, if that's your doctor, then they're your trusted advisor. Mm -hmm. And selling or moving a person to change in that scenario is like a, little, a frictionless surface. But there's, no, there's nothing that's going to slow down that advice. It's going to go into their brain and right through their actions mm -hmm. and wouldn't salespeople love to have that mm -hmm. and yet that is also the secret to becoming a great salesperson it's how quickly can you get to a place with a person that they perceive you as as trustworthy as their own doctor and that's what comes from how we're coming how we're showing up how we show up in that meeting, how we show up to that conversation will determine how quickly we get to a place where we can be viewed as a trusted advisor, where we can differentiate not the product, but ourselves. How fast can we get there? And I think that one of the best ways to get there is to develop a mindset. When you go into any sales conversation, develop a mindset in advance that says two things. One, it says, I'm here to help. I want to help. And isn't that really the same thing that a doctor is thinking when they're, especially if they're saying something like that, they, mm -hmm. they just want to help. So I, I want to help. I genuinely want to help. Now, when I say I want to help, if that's my mindset, that's not the same thing as I want to sell you something. That's a different mindset. But if we just work with this for a second, I want to help now. Have you all been in that conversation or in that room, something comes up and then someone chimes in and says, oh, I know how to solve that, blah, blah, blah. And they start giving you all kinds of advice and they give you six books you need to read and everything else. Yes. And, but they don't really understand the problem. And maybe you're way past that or it doesn't fit, right? So 
here we have this idea of, I want to help. Well, but you need one more piece to that. You can't just want to help because we can see that there are kind of sometimes some negative outcomes from people who just want to help. So we have to have one more piece to that. We have to be curious as to whether they need and want that help. And we, both of those things need to be present. So we walk in with a mindset of, I want to help, but only if you need and want the help. So now I'm curious as to whether that's the case. So now I'm going to start asking a lot of questions. That's where my curiosity is going to lead me. I'm going to start asking a lot of questions to try to figure out if you need and want the help. Well, I want to help. I'm looking forward to helping, but it's, I'm only going to do it if you need and want that help. So I get real curious real fast. I no longer have to think in terms of I want the sale. It doesn't matter. Right. Because if they need and want the help and they see me as somebody who only cares about that, they're going to trust me a lot faster than if they think I'm selling something. Let's take us back to the beginning part of this whole discussion. The second you present, because you might say, well, why Why did you tell me not to present too early? That's why you shouldn't present too early. Because when you present, you're sending a message to the person you're speaking to that you're trying to sell them something. And if you're trying to sell them something, then selling them something looks like your primary interest and helping them becomes secondary. So in order for helping to be primary, you can't bring the selling something into the equation. You can't come across as needing or wanting to sell them something. Mm -hmm. Sure, you have a product. Do you benefit from selling it? Sure you do. The doctor benefits from you getting that MRI, by the way. Mm -hmm. They do. But if it's primary that you need and want the sale, then what you've done is send a message to them that since that's important, then it might be true that this is really good for me, but it also might not be. I don't know because number one is that you sell it to me. That's the most important thing. And what that does is that means now I can't trust your opinion 100% because you've just shown me that you want to sell me something. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I have to go do my own research now. Right. And wouldn't it be easier if I could just say, hey, which thing should I do? And then you tell me, and right. you just save me a ton of time, a, a huge, long process, lots of time, a pain in the neck. I don't want to be the expert. I don't want to be the one to look it all up and figure it all out. I want that information from you. But the second you let on that you want to sell me something, I can't trust that information. If I have any judgment, I can't trust the information coming from you because selling to me is more important than helping me. Mm-hmm. So we can never present too early. We can only present the thing that is exactly 100% the thing that they need based on all the information you drew out of them because you were curious enough to ask about it and to find out and because you went in in the first place with the primary desire to help and not to make the sale. And it's hard for a salesperson to do that because they're like, wait a minute, no, I want to sell something. It's like, they can't, you got to back off from that. You're going to sell more if you stop trying to sell. I once dislocated my shoulder skiing and they brought me down the mountain in one of those things on my arms out here. And I'm like, I am in so much pain. 
and they were they wanted to pull it back into the socket, but they couldn't do that until they figured out if it wasn't broken because they didn't want to pull on a broken bone. Mm -hmm. So they did an X-ray at the bottom of the hill, and I'm still in just excruciating pain. My shoulder, my shoulder is over here. It's like I saw the X-ray. It was out of the socket, and it was over here. Yeah. And they had to see that first. And now they go, okay, we can pull it back in, and I'm in just excruciating pain. And three, three people get up on this table and one puts his foot right here and they start yanking on my arm and I'm like, ah, and I'm pulling back on him. And they said, you're going to have to relax so we can pull your arm out. <laughs> you're like, how, how can I relax in this situation? <laughs> how am I supposed to relax? I am pulling back on them as hard as they're pulling on me. But I listened to them. And I'm like, okay. I'm going to try this. And I basically had to just sort of suck up the immense pain of letting it go. And it went poof, and it went back in. And realistically, it was probably really painful at that point, but I wouldn't have known it because it felt so much better than when the arm was over here. Then I'm like, ah. <laughs> and so sometimes we have to, when we're selling, we can't just try to sell, try to sell. Stop trying to sell, try to help, be curious as to whether they need and want that help. And that may be harder to do. And it may feel like it's counterproductive because counterproductive to me to let loose and relax my arm because it was too painful. Mm -hmm. And it may feel counterproductive in that moment to do that. However, that's the very thing that accelerates the process along because you're going to get a lot more trust. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot fewer regrets. You're going to find the right solutions. They're going to open up to you and they're going to tend to take your advice because they see you as helping, not selling. Right. So, so when you said, um, and this is, this is a really, really, really important piece for the listener to key in on. <clears throat> when you said be curious, so contrary to popular belief as salespeople, who we believe our job is to sell and make commission, our, our primary job, if done correctly, the commission comes, the wins come, if we're here to serve. And if we're right. here to serve, whether it's us recommending someone else or something else versus it being us and in having that curiosity, um, this is a made up example in my head. And so this is just, I believe it would go this way if it did go this way. But if you were to, let's say you work at a, a butcher shop and you had some you know, 18, 19 year old kid come in and they're asking you, Hey, so what's the what's the cheapest cut I can get that has the most protein? <laughs> like, like you know, what, what can I get? I'm looking for lowest cost, highest protein. The the butcher, and you know, some people could say, oh, well, you're pushing away a sale. If the butcher was curious, and the butcher asked instead of just saying, oh, we got brown ground beef. Here you go. If he asked, um, you know, let me let me work on a couple of things for you. Can I ask why you're looking for so much protein? And if the kid says, well, I, I'm an aspiring bodybuilder. I'm just looking to get as much animal protein as possible, but I'm, I'm broke. I'm in college. Now, if the butcher asks the next question, does it have to be red meat or you know, is, is there any foods that you're opposed to? He says, no, no, no. Just highest amount of protein, lowest cost. The butcher then has the opportunity to say, here you go, kid. Go to Costco and buy frozen tilapia. If, if, you're, if you don't care about taste, 
And no, I don't care about tasting tilapia. You can flavor any way you want. But that's going <laughs> to be- you're going to say like liver or something. No, 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 no. no. I, wouldn't, no I, I wouldn't go that way. But, but if, he, if he makes that recommendation, he's done the right thing for the kid. That is the right thing for the kid. And, you know, maybe it doesn't work out this way, but I would be willing to bet that that kid will recommend the butcher for anything. If it does come time that the kid is going to go buy beef anywhere, he's going to come back to you because you weren't the salesperson. You were curious and you made a recommendation that's the best fit for them. And even when I'm on a sales call, if I feel like it's not the right thing or something sounds off, as soon as I make that comment of, you know, I don't even think you need this or have you, have you looked into doing it this way? The resistance, it's almost like it just like falls out of a plane. Boom, it's down. Well, no, no, no. I, you know, I didn't tell you all these other problems. And there's so much more that you don't know. And as soon as I'm not selling, that's when the trust comes. That's when they're willing to open up. That's when they're willing to tell me how big it is, how long it's been going on, why they need this so badly and that they actually do have it in the budget. And so the, the more, and this is hard to do, but the more that we can get away from trying to wrestle or choke hold something into submission and more of a, a waltz or a tango or a dance. And like, if I go this way, you go that way. And if it's not the right fit, we're gonna part ways. That's when sales, that's when the magic of selling happens. And that's when it doesn't feel like a painful, shitty job where you're getting your ass kicked every day. That's when it's right. really, really fun. So, right. Yeah. right. You're kind of introducing a, 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 some sort of purpose to it that makes you feel like, you know, this is what, something I want to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like doing it. I like helping people. That feels good. So I want to keep doing that. And then it's not work anymore. Mm hmm you're just, you're, you're, you can, you can go so much further than when what you're doing is joyful and fun than when it feels like a chore, you're being made to do it or someone's looking over your shoulder or they, or they want, they want to look at that metric at the end of the week. It's just mm -hmm. that, that adds an element that makes it a little drudge, you know, more like drudgery. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you find the way you can reframe it sometimes for yourself so that you can find a way that the enjoyment is there. And when it, when you can think of it as I get to help these folks and it doesn't matter what's being sold. It doesn't have to be some, something that's, you know, related to saving lives. Um, it can be, but it can also be providing the right, the right axle oil. It can be something like that because that's probably impacting somebody and the decision about axle oil is impacting somebody in potentially a profound way. And I remember having a, a, a role play with a, uh, with a client that, you know, that was one of the things that they sold. And, you know, it turned out that this, this person had, they were trying to sell to somebody who had a whole fleet of, of trucks that didn't have a, a, a self-cooling axle. That's a thing as it turns out. And, um, I know what you're talking about. Right. And then mm -hmm. it's it like, okay, well then you've got a, you've, you've got a customer here that's in a, that probably is suffering in some way, even if they don't know they are, or it might just be like, we can't just change out all the equipment now. Yeah. They have this new thing, but it'll cost us $20 million to change out all the equipment. Therefore, what do we do? And suddenly having the right axle oil that 
that breaks down at a higher temperature and keeps the system lubricated longer and maybe even eliminates the need for the cooling system could be life-changing for that person, for that person whose responsibility mm -hmm. is to do something else that might also be great. Maybe they're building something amazing and their ability to do that means that their team is out there getting done what needs to get done and they're not broken down and they don't have downtime and they're able to complete the project and it makes a lot of people happy. And, and it's on them and it's on their shoulders. So we, we can take something that seems mundane on the surface and find a way in which it's very interesting and very important for somebody and it in fact changes and improves their quality of life by, by getting it right. But it doesn't matter what we're selling. We can go in with the idea of, I can help. I can help somebody. It can make a difference. And if we're having that right conversation, remember we talked about, you know, you get the meeting and then you start presenting. But the stuff that you're skipping that's so important could be around something like, this could make a huge difference in this person's life. If we understood that, we understood that at an emotional level, um, then we're going to be having a conversation nobody else is having. And we're going to be differentiating ourselves that way. And it's going to lead us to a sale that happens before the presentation even gets made. Anyway, I know we're running out of time. Well, yeah, I was going to say, so, so I, this could go on for three hours. I actually do have a hard stop. So what that means is we're going to have a part two. Without okay. question. We're definitely going to have to have a part two. And there's, uh, there's 15 other subjects I can think of that we should be touching. I think we could probably have a part 15. Uh, right. But, but for, so for the day, I want to thank you for coming on. And if someone wants to reach out to you directly, would the easiest way would that be through LinkedIn? Uh, probably LinkedIn would be the best way. I think okay. uh, uh, I'm just Dennis Connolly on LinkedIn. Um, spelled the way it's spelled there, D-N-N-I-S-C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. Um, you might have to pause it and go back to get that spelling. No, no, no. That's So I'll, I'm going to put this into the show notes. But yeah, so it's Dennis Connolly, D-E-N-N-I-S-C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. And Correct. we will, no doubt, we're going to have a part two. And um, before, before I round the, or wind this down, uh, just quickly for you, Dennis, I told you this was going to flow. So this is just you and I going through this. We have so much that we can talk about that will be of use for at least one person out there. So I'm excited to get this going again. And we're going to earmark where we stopped, uh, stopped today. Yeah, and we, we can come up with way more subjects. And I think you're right. Um, this is a good exchange. And, and you have a lot to, to say about this. And I, I think that, you know, people listening to this hopefully uh, could see, you know, how much experience you have and what you've learned from all your clients. And, you know, you have a, an awful lot to, to, to tell people on that. And I know just because I know you and I know the experience your clients are having and talk about raving fans. You know, I wish I could get my clients to love me as much as your clients love you. So well done, sir. Um, <laughs> I look forward to the next one. Sounds good. And, and thank you for the kind words. And I just once again have to bring it full circle because credit is owed and credit is due. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And I genuinely mean that. So thank you very much. And once again, this has been an episode of Constructing Success. And I am very excited to pick this up very soon. So thank you thank very you. much.